my pleasure to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Yale. Dr. Yale teaches in the Department of History at the University of Iowa. She's a historian of science and of the book in the early modern world. She received her PhD in history of science from Harvard University, 2008, and she recently enjoyed a term as a visiting scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. Dr. Yale is the author of Sociable Knowledge, Natural History and the Nation in Early Modern Britain, brought out by the University of Pennsylvania Press. She's currently working on tracing the afterlives of early modern scientific and medical papers, including their archiving, posthumous publication, and destruction. She teaches early modern history, including the history of science and medicine, book history, women and gender, and British history. She also teaches the material analysis of early modern print and manuscript texts for the University of Iowa's Center for the Book. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Yale. All right, so yes, I think this is working. Um, let's just check our slide situation. Great, okay. So thank you all for coming tonight um, to listen to a talk about the history of science and the history of the book. In the 17th century, um, I had a moment earlier today um, where I was sitting out behind, I think it's McCormick Hall um, or McDowell Hall, and I heard people talking about Ptolemy, and then I heard a little bit of a snatch of conversation about T.S. Eliot, and I thought, ah, I am home. This is a good place to be today on a beautiful day. So thank you. Okay, so today, let's get a watch set up. Okay, so in the Assayer, published in 1623, here's the title page of that book, Galileo Galilei famously proclaimed that philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe, which stands continually open to our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed. It is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders about in a dark labyrinth. So tonight, what I want to ask is what does it mean to think of the universe as a mathematical book, legible if you only understand the characters in which it is written? This statement has been understood in many ways, as a foundational methodological principle of modern science, as a challenge to the counter-reformation Catholic Church's commitment to the inerrancy of scripture, as a tactical move in a battle for philosophical preference, if not preeminence at princely courts in Tuscany and Rome. And as we'll see tonight, the frontispiece to the assayer pictured here encapsulates all of these different questions. But what if we consider the statement from the perspective of the history of the book? An early modern European book like the assayer, was and is the nexus of a complex set of forces, the scholarly writing and relationships that produce texts, social, political, and economic systems governing the production and distribution of books, the readers who marked, excerpted, and otherwise appropriated the books, the material technologies of printing, ink, paper, and binding, the salons, libraries, coffee houses, bedrooms, kitchens, and studies, where readers encountered and discussed books, the libraries, both private and public, that have preserved the text down through time, including the rare book collection here at St. John's College, where I spent some time this morning, and the editors, translators, scholars, and publishers who have issued and reissued the text in modern editions since the 17th century. In Galileo's world, 
Book production was a matter of small local printing houses, patchy, ineffective regimes of pre- and post-publication censorship. Local media ecologies dominated by face-to-face -face relationships and gossip, and an international culture of scholarship grounded in correspondence, in observation and experiment, in note-taking, and in the Latin book, what we call the Republic of Letters. Given this, what do we miss about the history of early modern science if we read our sources in modern critical editions, in course packs, in online PDFs, on e-readers, and as text files on web pages? The materiality, of the, book, the materiality of the book, I would argue, as well as the intellectual, social, and economic aspects of book production and consumption, supported and constrained the communication of scientific ideas, the translation of the universal book of nature into individual books of nature. Who made and had access to the books of nature? How did they read them? How did early modern natural philosophers manipulate material formats and visual images in the service of scientific communication? How did readers' interactions with books inform early modern science? In examining early modern learning in terms of the production and use of books, we come to see the sciences not in terms of the passive reception and recording of nature's truths, which Galileo's metaphor of reading the grand book of the universe might initially seem to imply, but as active interventionist processes through which knowledge about the world is constructed, book and pen in hand. So today, kind of from within that orbit, I have kind of two big questions that I want us to be thinking about as we work through some examples, um, two overall goals. One, I want us to be thinking about how we make shared public meaning out of scientific ideas. What's the process by which knowledge that's developed within a small coterie of individuals expands outward such that it becomes meaningful for a larger society? Why and how do scientific ideas come to matter in the broader world? as instruments for political arguments, for seduction, for social control, as a means for economic advancement and a way of creating a sense of local or national identity. And I want to show that the history of the book can play a role in helping us to understand that question, that the sharing of information and the paths that information takes, that texts take as they move, can tell us something about the production of shared public meaning. And so, I guess one way of phrasing that question then is what happens when we put some history of the book flesh on our textual bones? A second question that I want you all to be thinking about with me tonight um, is also how we might reevaluate the models we have or the understandings we have for how texts circulate. Um, so I'll throw up one of these older models on our screen just so we can take a look at it. Um, this is from an article that the book historian Robert Darnton uh, published in 1982 um, where he outlined a plan for a communication circuit that fo uh, focused in particular um, on, on the circulation of printed books in the 17th and 18th century. Um, and I want us to think perhaps how we might rethink or reevaluate models like this, which presume or sort of show a text moving around in a circle from an author to a reader. And I want us to think about what a model like this might leave out and how we might amend it. Um, and as I work through these examples, I'd like to ask you to think with me about these questions tonight. So both the one about how we make shared public meaning out of scientific ideas, and then how we might think about or, or renovate or, or restore, to use Francis Bacon's word for what he wanted to do with the sciences in the 17th century, how we might think about or restore our models of the history of the book and think about how texts circulate in broader ways. And then how they're connected, right? What's the connection between making shared public meaning and the circulation of texts? So I'll work through sort of three examples tonight. Um, the first is a, a, Galil a Galilean example, building on our image of the assayer. Um, thinking about through print and through images in particular, 
um, how shared public meaning is created in vernacular English literature. Let me just adjust this a little bit. Um, then I have a little bit about the role of women in authorizing, authoring, and authenticating printed books in the early modern world. Um, what can women's roles tell us about the role of gender in creating shared public meaning with scientific and medical ideas as well? What can it tell us about women's public and private participation in the history of print and in the history of science? And I think it's interesting just to note here that one of the things that this image doesn't talk about at all is, is questions like gender, right? Which were just starting to come into consideration in the academy in the decade around when Darnton was writing. And then I want to think through um, an example that expands the field a little bit. So I mentioned earlier that one of the, this question about shared public meaning has to do with thinking about how scientific ideas move from a small coterie out to become meaningful in the broader society. Um, but we can also consider the ways in which the broader society was part of the process of creating the ideas themselves, where there wasn't necessarily a restriction to those who self-identified as naturalists or natural philosophers, um, but that the creation of shared public meaning was part of the scientific process. Um, so take a look at the construction. We'll take a look tonight at the construction of natural history and antiquarian studies in the late 17th century, um, looking at the ways that not just naturalists and natural philosophers participated, but we see clerics, gentlemen and gentlewomen, um, school teachers, and even servants, farmers, and shepherds participating in these activities. So each of these examples, I hope, will help us to reflect on the various facets of my two primary questions, how we create shared public meaning out of and through scientific knowledge, and how we might rethink or revise our older models for the history of the book. So when we consider the history of science as a progression of printed texts, in this example, or the meaning of this example will become clear in a moment. One book sort of pinging to the next, minds encountering minds, as if texts were minds sans bodies. It's tempting to see the history of science as a kind of spiritualized progression. Indeed, mid-20th century philosophers of science wrote and thought this way. Consider Michael Polanyi, the Hungarian philosopher of science, in his lecture, Science, Faith, and Society, which you see here, printed in 1946. A new secular spirit, he writes, inspired Nicholas Copernicus and Andreas Vesalius in their landmark publications on astronomy and human anatomy, both published in 1543. But what precisely was that secular spirit? Is that something we can so show diffusing through texts and through the information that circulated? As the 16th and 17th centuries progressed, we see Copernicus reading Ptolemy and Archimedes, having a bright idea, wondering what if. Galileo reading Copernicus, Kepler reading Galileo, Galileo reading Kepler, Descartes reading Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler, Newton reading Descartes, Galileo, Copernicus, and Kepler. And so astronomy hops from mind to mind, expanding into modern physics as it goes. For Polanyi, this journey was the highest priority for humankind. Even more than the enlargement of physical and social well-being, the scientific journey was humanity's purpose. If anything, in fact, in these lectures on science, faith, and society, um, Polanyi suggested that um, the scientific journey could lead man towards God, though of course he leaves the definition, his definition of God, way open. Um, the sciences could lead you there in some fashion. And we see that other historians sort of read Polanyi in this way as well. So using some of the methodology of the history of the book, um, this was a copy of Polanyi's lectures that was read and annotated by the philosopher of science, Erwin Hebert. And he has a note at the very end where he sort of has Pythagoras and then Copernicus and Kepler and sort of talking about the different aspects of their, um, their, their sciences and their, their kind of uh, spiritual journeys. So when we put the text back into the book, what do we gain by doing so? What do we get by putting texts back into books and minds back into bodies? 
um, an older wave of book historical scholarship focused primarily on print, allying the scientific revolution with the print revolution. And this is an important step in terms of understanding how ideas circulated, how a medium or a technology could impact or shape the circulation of ideas. One sees this in classic works, for example, by Elizabeth Eisenstein and Adrian Johns, in which the scientific revolution itself is reconstructed as a history of publication dates, and the properties of the printing press and the features of print culture are applied to explain the history of the scientific revolution. And of course, we see that as well in Bob Darnton's communication circuit, which focuses primarily on printed books. But I think to understand how scientific knowledge was constructed, we need to look across and around print to the notebooks, to the slips of paper, the letters and marginalia through which naturalists and many, many others recorded and shared information. And thinking beyond this classic communication circuit, which focused on the book as printed book, we begin to see a broader textual ecology in which the printed book flourished, was, but, but was not the only means of communication. And we can think about how that broader textual ecology, which rumbled with the passage of letters, of pens scratching out notebook entries, questionnaires and forms, incompleted printed text meant to be completed by a receiver, and the creation of archival records. And we can think about drawings as well, um, the role of, of art and image in the, in the history of science. We have many texts in flux, collaboratively constructed. Are we sure there's always something stable to pass along the communication circuit? How and when did naturalists care about the stability of the text? When did they seek collaborative authorship, a gradual expansion and accretion of information? And when did they seek to make that collaboration visible in their printed texts? What are their practices of citation and of acknowledgement? We also begin to see a conversational world, one in which books and other texts, such as letters, were received and understood in the context of relationships, enacted in specific spaces, such as bookshops, coffee houses, country homes, kitchens, and university common rooms. Considering print within a broader textual ecology also encourages us, I think, to rethink any divide we might see between medieval and early modern, a divide often marked by the invention of movable type and the printing press. Perhaps it wasn't the printing press that was the important development. Um, if we want to depend on technology, we might look at the coming of paper and paper manufacturing to Europe, which made writing textual activity of any kind much more readily available. Okay, so with that sort of preliminaries spoken, I want to take a look at some of these images. Um, I'd like to work first through thinking about um, the way in which a sort of visual narrative or visual argument is created um, by Galileo in The Assayer and in the frontispiece to the Dialogo, or the Dialogue on the Two Chief World Systems, and then through some of the uh, vernacular Copernican texts um, published in England. So, first, just a, a little bit on the concept of a kind of, uh, of a visual argument. Um, how is public shared meaning made through these images? Um, and we can think about that in terms of the visual argument that's being made in these texts. Um, so in a Galilean text, for example, um, and this is one of the famous engravings of the moon, though it's not from the 1610 copy, um, it's from a 1655, sorry about that, a 1655 copy um, printed in, in Bologna, um, where it shows you the woodcut images of the moon um, somewhat as Galileo saw them through the telescope. Um, what you see here in terms of the visual argument that's being propounded in this particular image um, is the idea that uh, the moon is rough, that it has a rough surface. And so the, the sort of points to highlight here are the points where a little bit of light falls on the shadowy side of the moon, and you can see a little bit of shadow on the light side of the moon. Um, 
And they communicate this argument without being entirely accurate, in fact, that Galileo emphasized some of these features, such as the crater on the bottom half, um, are features that you don't actually see if you point a telescope at the moon, but they sort of communicate that point, that the moon has a rough surface. And if you move through a number of other images, you can see how, again, an extremely degraded version of some of the Galilean images, but attempts to communicate that same point of roughness by highlighting the, uh, the waviness of the boundary of the divisor between light and shadow and the way that you see light on the further side. So you have these images being reproduced and produced through multiple um, images printed following Galileo's original 1610 publication through the 17th century. Um, images reproduced in translations of the Sidereus Nuncius itself and images reproduced in entirely other books but based on the Galilean text. So if we think about a sequence of frontispieces, what's the image that's being created? So beginning with the assayer itself, um, the kind of, of, of argument or textual argument that Galileo is making for the mathematical sciences and how he's situating it within a broader world or a broader ecology. Um, we might look first to the emblems at the very top of the image. We see three Bs. Um, we see the mitre and we see the crossed keys. Um, there we see not only the symbols for uh, the, the Pope himself, or the See of St. Peter, um, with the image of the crossed keys and the mitre, but for the specific Pope at the time, in 1623, when Galileo was publishing, um, the three Bs are the emblem of the Barberini family. So we see Galileo working to situate this text within the patronage structures and within the social structures of its time. It's not a text that's meant to challenge necessarily, but one that he hopes will sort of slip in. Um, furthermore, we see some of the other patronage aspects and patronage structures. So if we take a look at the prominence of the various names on the, the textual part of the title page, um, Galileo Galilei appears, but also his titles and his primary patron. So he's the primary philosopher and mathematic, uh, mathematician to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, um, and he's a fellow of the Academy of the Lincei of, the, uh, of Florence. And we see the emblem of the Academy of the Lynx down at the bottom as well. So again, that idea of situating it within some of these corporate structures of fellowship and these sort of hierarchies, right? And yet we also see a challenge going on to establish knowledge in this image between the figure representing natural philosophy on the left and the figure representing mathematics on the right. Um, at the time, we typically think of at least the way Galileo's challengers would have understood it, um, that theology is the queen of the sciences, that mathematics occupies a kind of subordinate place, um, that mathematics can, and astronomy is included within this, it can explain the appearances it can sort of construct a series of circles in terms of orbits and things like that that help you match the phenomena um, or help predict the phenomena, but it doesn't tell you anything about reality. And so Galileo here has actually moved the crown over to mathematics in a kind of subtle or not so subtle challenge. Okay, so if we think a little bit more about the way some of these images are creating a narrative for the history of science and trying to create that sense of shared public meaning. And we see some of the development of the iconography of the Galilean and Copernican sciences here <coughs> in the dialogue on the two chief world systems. Um, we have again sort of the name of Galileo as author. We have his corporate affiliations uh, with the Linceans, with the Society of the Lynx. We have his patronage under the Grand Dukes of Tuscany. Um, but we have a sense of this images of, of natural philosophy and of astronomy being created as a conversation between ancients and moderns in a way. So our figures here, and I don't know if it's possible to see this or not, um, but our figures here are Aristotle on the far left, 
Ptolemy here in the middle, and then Copernicus on the right. So we're setting up a conversation, um, a conversation where in the space of a book, these three figures who would not have known each other and could not have known each other, of course, because they were separated by such distance in space and time, can gather together on the seashore and have a dialogue. And in terms of the, the iconography here, we sort of see the ships, right? The idea of there being new worlds to explore, potentially connecting into some of the senses of exploration and discovery that are happening in the period. Um, we see the iconography in terms of the instruments that they're each holding as well. Um, so Copernicus is represented by um, the small sort of heliocentric instrument that he holds that shows the sun with the earth in orbit around it. And then Ptolemy in the middle with his uh, planetary, his armillary sphere. So the instrumentation is introducing some of those elements as well. So moving a little bit forward into this vernacular world and the ways that some of these visual arguments reorient and, and they get picked up and sort of transformed into an argument for the new sciences. Um, so this is one of the very first sort of vernacular English Copernican texts. It's um, written by John Wilkins, who goes on to be one of the founding members of England's Royal Society. And uh, he, along with a number of other people, makes a leap to imagining that, okay, so if the moon is rough, it has a surface like the Earth's, it must be that there are people there, right? There must be inhabitants on the moon of some kind. Um, he and Kepler, Johannes Kepler, are two of the figures who make this jump. Um, and so he's trying to create a sort of sense of there only being one option, right? So Galileo's text, if we go back to this one, right, we still have the sense of conversation, um, of it being a conversation and a back and forth between ancients and moderns, and Galileo doesn't put himself in the text. Um, we also here have the el elimination of one of the potential options. So this is one of the ways you can think about how the visual image is trying to force you into a path that Galileo wants you to take as a reader. You don't necessarily have to take this path, right? Because often readers are very rebellious. But the image is trying to force you into a path of ignoring a third option, which would be a Tychonic system. Um, so Tycho Brahe was another astronomer who came up with a geoheliocentric system. And between the geoheliocentric system of Tycho and the Copernican heliocentric system, there's actually no observational difference as far as the early 17th century was concerned. Um, so Galileo leaves that one out on purpose to make the case stronger for Copernicanism. And again, his readers did, were not fooled by that. So Wilkins is trying to make the case even stronger. So we have, in the very first edition of this book published in 1638, um, we have only the Copernican system presented. Um, we have the sun at the center, right, where it's sort of providing the motive power, both illumination and motion, and some of the, the Latin texts that are falling along the bottom. Um, but on the other hand, we have the Earth still separated out. Um, so the Earth set below the sun, even though its circuit continues above the sun with the other planets as well. The other planets are lined up away from the sun um, above, and then the Earth on the bottom. So we have a Copernican system but one in which the Earth is still sort of separated out visually and given a separate place. But then we see how this particular title page evolves in terms of picking up on what we have in Galileo's Dialogo in the dialogue on the two chief world systems. So if we think about how the sort of visuals of Copernicanism are evolving here, of the Galilean astronomy. Um, it superficially picks up on the iconography of the Dialogo, but I think also radically transforms it, where instead of Aristotle, Ptolemy, and Galileo, or and, and Copernicus, excuse me, um, now we have Copernicus on the left um, with a sort of speech bubble above him saying quid c sic, so sort of what if, right, pointing up, having the idea in 1543. And then on the right-hand side, we've got Galileo holding the telescope, um, and we have Kepler um, whispering in his ear, essentially. Um, and there's, I think, 
a very kind of powerful message that Wilkins is attempting to communicate here in terms of, again, sort of visually structuring the narrative of the new sciences, which is that combination, a powerful combination of quid si sic, what if, and then on the other side with Galileo, hic eius oculi, with this, eye, with this telescope, with this eyepiece, essentially, or with this eye, right, which I can substitute for my own eyes. So a kind of combination, and this is a text that's designed to try and draw, or designed to try and draw um, others into investigating things, uh, similar kinds of scientific and astronomical questions. So he really wants to sort of expand and evangelize for the new sciences of the 17th century. So this combination, right, of, of what if plus with this telescope, that's sort of the, the question seeking or question asking, um, plus the use of instruments and expanding what's available to the site. And very, fairly soon after this, and Wilkins will be involved in some of these developments as well, we have the sort of um, some of the first publications that are illustrating what the world looks like um, through the eyepiece of a microscope. So we've got that sort of sense, again, of, of the expansion. And we've got a moving away from the conversation between ancients and moderns to just moderns now on the frontispiece. Um, we also see, and I think that in one of the transformations you see here with a sort of map that underlays the title, A Discourse Concerning a New World and Another Planet in two books, um, is that there's a, a, an echo towards the maps of the period, so that it, it really is attempting to show that this is a place that we can visit, and it's a bit like places we've seen before. So we think about the little hints of trees. Um, so this is an image from Thomas Harriet's Brief and True Report, a map um, of the coast of North Carolina, the sort of the trees and the sort of figures of mountains and the jaggedness of the coastline. Um, so we've moved away from right our images of the moon, which have sort of echoes of that, but still seem somewhat otherworldly, potentially to something that looks like something you might see in a topographical map, right? Is, is calling on those kinds of visual echoes. And this frontispiece is used in 1640, and it's used for an edition of the text in 1683 as well. Um, and one of the tools we have for thinking about how, how much these texts would have been distributed and how popular they would have been are, are sort of the existence of recorded copies. And we have something like 60 copies of this book surviving across libraries in England um, and in America. And so it was an extraordinarily popular way of framing these particular texts. So I want to think a little bit about some of the textual arguments for Copernicanism as well. Oh, sorry, one more. Um, this is one I picked up this morning, um, actually, in the St. John's College rare book room, that I think it's interesting to think about where the Galilean iconography has ended up in terms of underwriting visually um, and textually um, a new kind of social order, but one that is, is grounded again in the sciences. So we had a sense of Galileo potentially trying to integrate his sciences into a sense of the social order in the 1620s with the title page of the Assayer, um, but we have the challenge to the place of natural philosophy um, with mathematics supplementing that. Um, and then when we get to the 1740s, so 1749, with a kind of astronomical or Galilean iconography here um, by Buffon, so this is, is French, that we sort of have the images of divinity, right, and the images of God reintegrated back into the Copernican system. And so we see um, with each of those orbits in the image on the far left, there's, you know, at the very extended one, there's a little tiny Saturn with the moons that were known about it at that point, um, Jupiter with its moons and moving in, and then the image over here, which is a sort of compact representation of Galileo's career, in fact, because it shows a pendulum, it shows a telescope, and it shows balls rolling down inclined planes. So you could use this as a kind of uh, emblematology or iconography 
of the new sciences and sort of reinsert it back into something that told you a little bit about social and religious order in the middle part of the, the 18th century. Okay, so thinking a little bit about the way in which this culture of astronomy, of vernacular astronomy is expanding um, and how it's interpreted through these vernacular books. Um, so this is from a popular text of 1684, so published about the same time um, as the third and fourth edition, or fourth and fifth edition, sorry, of Wilkins's Discovery of a World in the Moon. And the, um, the tone of the book and this particular image is showing um, both sort of the appearance of Jupiter through the telescope um, and the orbit of the satellites. Um, one thing I think that's sort of interesting about this is that, uh, so in one of the seminars I visited today, we were talking about um, phenomenology and Mendel and what Mendel can see in pea seeds versus what he infers in pea seeds. Um, by the end of the 17th century, we've moved from presenting an image that shows you exactly what you think you see through the telescope to what you can infer, right? So we've gone from sort of um, in the Sidereus Nuncius of Galileo, the moons of Jupiter are arrayed in a time sequence, and now we have the orbits inferred. So we've got that going on. Um, but we also have in Walker's uh, Astronomy's Advancement or News for the Curious, a sense of a kind of broader astronomical culture being developed. Um, and I think it's interesting that it's sort of, this is a text that spans over 140 years of astronomy. Um, so there's no assumption that everyone would be up to speed yet within this broader culture, but that you know, there's still lots for people to know um, that even the, what's been developed 140 years ago is still in some sense new for many people. Um, but what's interesting about it is that the, the tone of the book suggests that as a layman, you can enjoy the pretty pictures while not necessarily agreeing with the theory. Um, so Walker writes, for example, the advantages of this hypothesis, that this hypothesis, which he means Copernicanism, has above the other is too long here to insist on. Only I will say there are some very learned men who no more doubt that the motion of the earth will be received generally within a small compass of years than that now men believe the antipodes or the circulation of blood and think it as much demonstrable as either of them. And then he also goes into, so he separates out sort of right the, the, the amateur from the serious learned man, right? You might appreciate some of this even if you're not a serious investigator in it. Um, and he also talks about the uncertainty, the just various degrees of certainty or uncertainty we can assign to various astronomical phenomenon. Um, so for example, he reports that we can't be certain about distances to the fixed stars, the very distant stars, right? Um, but we can be fairly certain about the appearances of the planets, right? By this, time we've, by this point, we've determined that there are rings around Saturn, um, and we have a sense of the, the physical appearance of Jupiter, right? Um, and he sort of talks a bit more about this uncertainty, and he says, at the end of a discussion about how to use a telescope. So again, the idea that a, a layperson would be interested in this kind of material. And truly, quote, these are entertainments so noble and glorious, as well as ravishing and transporting, that it is to be wondered how persons whose parts and fortunes qualify them for them are able to temperate themselves from them. But perhaps it will be said that the uncertainty of the truth of them discourages. So there's a question there, right, again, about the level of, of certainty we have about some of these discoveries. What I think is interesting, though, about what we see in Walker's Astronomy's Advancement um, is that even though he dwells on some of the spaces left for doubt, his writing also highlights the kind of broader culture, uh, the development of a culture of astronomy and mixed mathematics, one in which a layperson could contribute, one in which a sort of um, economic advancement could be found as well. So repeated suggestions throughout the book, for example, um, he makes that the reader can get a clear understanding of how to use a telescope from the many makers that sell them. 
So there's a sense of a sort of rich urban landscape of, la of artisans and craftsmen, um, a sense of expert and amateur. The book assumes an audience for detailed descriptions of visual discoveries about the planets. Um, and again, sort of discriminating what we, we can and can't know um, and, uh, and assigning probabilities um, and sort of saying where the appearances are secure and where the knowledge isn't secure. And so we have a, a, a sense of Copernican astronomy here um, being something that could be consumed by a lay audience, which you didn't necessarily have at the beginning of the century. So creating a broader culture that can appreciate and enjoy these things. So thinking a little bit about gender, um, I want to look at the way that we think about how gender and the role of gender in authorizing these discoveries and creating a sense of public meaning. Um, and there are sort of two different aspects of this that I want to think about. Um, one is the way that Afrobain, who's the translator of this text, A Discovery of the New World, um, which is a translation of a French text by the French academician Fontenelle. And it's another one of these that sort of imagines what must life be like on other planets. Um, once we assume that our Earth is a planet, then there must be you know, inhabitants in other places as well. Um, so I want to think about her assertion of authority in this text and the tension between her assertion of authority and the position that the male author of a book like this wants to put sort of the feminine listener or feminine reader into. So this text is a dialogue between a natural philosopher, unnamed, um, and a countess, um, so a, a noble. It takes place It takes place in a garden uh, of, an, of an estate, a country house, over several nights. So there's a kind of a scene of potential seduction, right? These are unmarried, it's an unmarried man and an unmarried woman together in the garden in the evening. Um, and we can get a sense of where that fits in Afrobain's oeuvre from some of her more popular works, right? That she's more popularly known as a novelist and a playwright from the period um, who wrote these uh, romantic stories, um, stories about sort of women chasing after their lovers, um, histories of adventure. Um, she was a, a spy, potentially, in the Netherlands for a little while. Um, and, and her own sort of history of love and, and her love life was of interest right alongside those books. Um, so the history of the life. So this is printed with her own love letters um, written between her and a Dutch merchant and between her and a gentleman in England. So she sort of is attracted to some of these materials and is, is interested right, in these histories of love and seduction. Um, but if we think about the way that she's asserting her authority in different ways. So we see that her name on the title page um, is present. So by Mrs. Afrobain, um, we don't have the name of Fontenelle. Um, what's interesting about this is the way it gets sort of reversed uh, in the catalogs these days. So if you search for this book um, in the English short title catalog, which is the catalog that has most of the information um, about books printed in England before 1700, the author comes up as Fontenelle, right? But Afrobain, puts herself, she's the only one on the title page, right, as, as the translator, and we don't have the author from the title page, which tells you a little bit about, if we think about kind of the creation of shared public meaning, um, that within a particular market, within a local market, it might be the name of a translator that will be the thing that will move a book, right, rather than the original author's name. And I think Afrobain knew that, so we have another note where she talks about how she sort of apologizes for the mistakes that are present in the text, but that she was rushing to get out her edition before another translation that she knew of that was in the works was published. And so she wants to be the first on the market, the first to kind of claim that space. So she's asserting her authority here on the title page. Um, she asserts it 
with some deference, but with a hint of playfulness and mockery throughout the text as well. Um, so for example, in the dedication, which she dedicates to uh, a member of the English nobility, um, she writes that, uh, I hope you will accept something from a woman, right? That I, I should be so bold to speak on this. Um, she says sort of similar things where she um, is unsure. She criticizes Fontenelle's text um, because you know he makes women seem to say very things that she thinks are very silly. Um, she criticizes the content of it as well, where she questions this notion of there being inhabitants on other planets. She thinks that if he had stuck to the Copernican astronomy, it would be great, but the idea that he wants to imagine um, inhabitants on other planets is something that she finds a little bit questionable. Um, but at the same time, she sort of speaks deferentially of, well, I thought it proper to translate this text because an English woman could be supposed to translate anything that a French woman could have been supposed to say. So it's, it's a back and forth, a kind of push-pull between asserting authority and, and clearly having some authority to move texts in the marketplace and that it's her name that appears on the title page um, and her novels and her plays are, are popular throughout the 17th century. Um, so playing with how far can a woman go to assert that kind of authority. But on the other hand, I think uh, one of the other things we see in texts like this, um, in, in the dialogic form, in the way that Fontenelle uses it, in the way that other authors use it, um, teaching a woman astronomy, using a dialogic form to explain some of the new sciences where you have the sort of the male teacher and the female, the female student, um, I think it suggests for us a role for gender that's intention, intention with the authority that Aphrobane is asserting, um, in that if we can present the, the new astronomy sort of as a subject fit for a woman, um, these authors seem to be suggesting, one that would reinforce for her notions of good behavior and social order, then we've reached a certain degree of social respectability for the new astronomy as a science. So in the mode of receiving, listening, questioning, but ultimately accepting the new sciences, the countess in this story is a kind of authorizing presence. Um, so we might compare um, the Countess in Fontenelle's A Discovery of the New World to um, some of the English Newtonian varieties of these kinds of dialogues that are popular from the 18th and even into the 19th century. So didactic dialogues between a man and a woman. Um, so for example, in The Young Gentleman and Ladies Astronomy, the instrument maker and popular lecturer, James Ferguson, communicated astronomical principles through a series of dialogues between a brother and a sister. So here already you see the difference between a kind of English prudishness, right, and the sort of the, the, the French sort of seductive version of astronomy. Um, the brother, Neander, is on a break from his Cambridge studies, instructing his sister, Eudosia, in astronomy each morning after breakfast. So in these lessons, astronomy reinforces a rational, humble, feminine piety on the one hand and a patriarchal authority on the other hand. Both men and women learned through astronomy to love God, but women also learned that they were subordinate to men. When Eudosia sighs, wishing that there was a university where she might further pursue her scientific studies, her brother Neander responded that there was no need for a university for ladies. Their brothers, fathers, and husbands should take on the responsibility of instructing them, giving them a means of occupying their time in sensible, rational ways, and leaving them with no taste for the too common and expensive ways of murdering it by going abroad to card tables, balls, and plays. I kind of would like to murder my time, I think, in some of those ways. Fortified with astronomy, Neander continued, how much better wives, mothers, and mistresses they would be is obvious to the common sense of mankind. So Neander here neatly ties, and sort of Ferguson by extension, neatly ties astronomy to a man's authority over his female relatives. 
He impugns the masculinity of men who thought, who thought astronomy was beyond women. If men failed in teaching their female relative science, he went on to say, thinking that scientific studies were beyond their capacities, it was only because they didn't want to betray their own scientific ignorance. Eudocia concurred with Neander. Astronomy helped her to know her place in the created and social orders. When Neander declared that he wanted to publish a version of their domestic conversations, in part to make this clear, Eudocia insisted that he remove her name for modesty's sake. Though there were no boundaries between what men and women might know, brother and sister agreed, there was a firm division between public and male and domestic, which encompassed both female and male. I think we make a big mistake when we think of the domestic world as a female sphere only, because you see continual points of interaction between men and women in the domestic sphere. There is still this separation between a public male world and a domestic female and male world. And I think that this text really encapsulates that, te encapsulates that tension then um, between Aphrobane pushing on that authority and claiming a kind of authorship, um, and clearly having the market reinforce that sense of authorship in a way. Um, and the sort of overall mode of the text and the form of the dialogue. And we can see some of those points echoed a bit in other cases. And again, I think it's interesting to think about um, whose name moves a text. Um, and also this begins to bring in a sense of the relationships between manuscript and print and that broader ecology that I talked about. Um, so this is the English physician um, by Nicholas, or the English physician enlarged, excuse me, um, by Nicholas Culpepper, who's a popular medical um, translator and author in the 1640s and 1650s. He develops into a kind of brand name of his own. So his is the name that really moves texts. Um, and there's interesting relationships here, again, between the role of women in authorizing or authenticating the text and also the way that the kind of broader, as I said, media ecology begins to play into our understanding of this text and the way that um, authority and authenticity are created around it. So on the one hand, we see here, um, there was a, a question about plagiarism with these texts and who were, which were the authentic editions. So whenever a book was popular, you'd get pirates going after it um, to try and get a cut of the money, right? So sort of some of these fly-by-night operations where people were taking the text and resetting it. Um, and you could use the material text itself as a judge or a way of authenticating the text. Um, so we have directions uh, in the edition that you need to look for a particular running title, um, the one that says the English physician enlarged. You need to look for a particular outline, right? Um, a structure to each of the entries. And these would be sort of entries that list plants and then what you can use them for medicinally. Um, and then book size as well. So the true one is an octavo, so a smaller size. Um, and then a sense of a size of type or a size of letter and of typography. So that the material text could be used to authenticate. Um, but you could also see that, that again, much as in Aphrobane's case, um, a woman's voice could be authorizing and could be a selling point as well. So after um, Nicholas Culpepper's death in the middle part of the 1650s, rival printers take on publishing his works, and there's a question about who has the authentic right to publish them. And it's a big question because there's a lot of money at stake, in fact. Um, and what you see is that one of the printers, Nathaniel Brooks, starts running editions of the books where he slaps on a letter from Alice Culpepper, the, the widow, claiming that these are the authentic texts, I have the real ones, and um, you know he, she gave them to Nathaniel Brooke, the printer, after his death, and she testifies that that's the case. Um, the other printer, Peter Cole, 
comes out with his own letter from the widow, right? So again, there's a sense that this is the woman who would be positioned to know she can speak authoritatively about the authenticity of the texts. Um, and from some of the archival records and from some of the details of the letters, it would appear that Alice Culpepper, the widow, was in fact working with Brooke, um, that she decries uh, the sort of theft of the texts by, um, sorry, by Brooke. So she's working with Peter Cole. Um, she also talks a little bit about sort of the, um, the, the her husband's manly style. Um, so you can see gender coming in that way as well, um, where you can tell, she, she writes, you can tell that Nathaniel Brooke forged some of the texts that he published because he made her husband speak in the whining tones of a ballad maker. Um, so again, the sort of the role of gender and sort of expected styles in enforcing authenticity. But again, you can see the way sort of the market rewards this kind of authority on the part of a woman. Um, so if we skip ahead here to one of the later texts that was published. Um, this is one pretending to be a message from Culpepper's ghost, again, claiming that Peter uh, Cole is the authentic printer, where we have another version of Mrs. Culpepper's epistle and vindication of her husband now moving to the front, right? It's sort of appearing on, on as the major selling point. And again, thinking about the ecology and the way books are marketed in this period, often what you would see is that the title pages are up, right? They'll be in the bookshops, they'll be in the coffee shops as something that'll be used to advertise the book. And so it's one of the first things that people see or know. Um, that the covers aren't a thing in this period, so that wouldn't be your main image. Your main image would be of the title page, almost being used like a broadside um, in some of the coffee houses of London. And so again, this idea of a woman's name as a potential sell -a point, selling point as having some kind of authority in the marketplace, kind of in the way Afrobane's name does. Um, a sense of the broader media ecology that some of these texts are operating in. So the, um, the world of the face-to-face, -face, the world of the oral, the world of the London streets, um, the way in which... Alice Culpepper's words are authenticated is by replicating both a form of correspondence. So we write this as if it were a letter um, with a close, your servant, um, in and for the truth. And then her name in italic script to mimic something like handwriting or something like a, uh, a signature. Um, and then sort of the, the location um, and the date at which she wrote, um, where she wrote the letter and, and when she wrote the letter. Um, and a note that if anyone has any questions about any of this material, they can come talk to her, right? So they can come find her face-to-face -face and they can work it out and she can sort of explain to them how it's authentic. And again, sort of um, the importance of the signature, the importance of the manuscript forms in terms of proving the authenticity of the printed texts appearing at the bottom where it talks about her signing these letters in front of witnesses. So we get a sense of that broader conversational and face-to-face -face world in the London streets in the 1660s. Okay, so very finally, um, the very last of these examples that I wanted to talk about is the construction of, back to this question of how do we create shared public meaning in and through the sciences, um, and then also how is that a process that's happening not just after the fact, as it were, as we saw potentially in some of the astronomical examples, but how it's something that happens in the process as we're going through. And I want to focus here on um, natural history uh, and antiquarian studies and the various ways in which you see um, different kinds of meanings, of shared public meanings being assigned to the text. So this is John Aubrey's Natural History of Wiltshire, which is a manuscript book um, that Aubrey compiled through the 1650s, 60s, 80s, and early 90s. Um, and he invited a number of his friends to annotate the book with him. Um, it's meant as a kind of survey of the uh, natural history and economic practices, agricultural practices um, of the county of Wiltshire where he grew up. And so it's very much about that sense of local identity, um, but also how that local identity meshes into wider, potentially national identities. So Aubrey invites 
um, his friends John Evelyn, John Ray, um, and a couple of other clerics to annotate the text and expand it. And they end up adding material that sort of speaks to their own experience um, in the localities in which they grew up and that they had experience of. So it starts out as kind of a book about the natural history of Wiltshire, one county in England, but expands outward, right, with each person contributing information based on their experience. And it also comes to reflect a sense of the community and a sense of the relationships. Um, so for example, at the bottom here, the note there, um, it's Aubrey marking out that some of the annotations weren't particularly special to him. So he says, those annotations to which are prefixed this mark, which is a, a J-E, were writ by my worthy friend, John Evelyn. Twas a pity he wrote them in black lead, in pencil, so that I was fain to run them over again with my pen. I think not one or two of the words are obliterated. So you get a sense that, that the importance of the text, of sharing it, of creating it, um, was to build these kinds of relationships and encode these kinds of relationships. Um, so that, you know, Aubrey's own single authorship um, this is on one of the title pages of the text, was just as important to him as was the sense of relationship and his integration into a community of authors and writers. Um, so I was asking earlier, we need to think about when authorship matters, when it doesn't, when it's collective, when it's not. You know, this is one of those cases where authorship might appear to be more collective and was in fact collective. Now, some of these, the, the natural history and antiquarian studies, which also encompassed um, studies of languages, literatures, and, and customs in the 1680s and 1690s, um, it was really constructed around uh, concepts of national identity and, and community, right? Um, that you have authors, figures like Aubrey, like Edward Thwid, who's the second curator of the Ashmolean Museum, um, attempting to conceive or create a picture of sciences or use sort of scientific techniques of data collection, natural philosophical and natural historical techniques of data collection in the period um, to understand the world in a geographical way. Um, so for example, this is a book that was attempting to create um, uh, comparative uh, dictionaries of Welsh, Irish, Scottish, Cornish, and Breton, and it's a book that of necessity involved a broader public so that there was a world beyond just the natural historian, just the, the curator that was involved in putting together a book like this where um, you have sort of Edward Thwid, the, uh, the curator of the Ashmolean Museum and the sort of nominal author, is working collaboratively, kind of person to person across the land um, through family relationships and local relationships. He's interested in language, he's interested in antiquities, in natural history, in deep human history, um, in agricultural and craft practices, and all of these things are organized geographically. And crafting the text um, is in itself an exercise in shared public meaning, where he's inviting the gentry, the clergy, local school teachers, everyone from the, the bishop in the high seat down to the illiterate shepherd to participate in crafting these texts. And he does that through some of these sort of mixed sorts of texts that are both print and manuscript. Um, the distribution of something like 4,000 different questionnaires um, across Wales, Scotland, um, and a little bit into Ireland and Cornwall um, to get a sense of what do people in each location know, right? And how can they contribute to the project? And he crafts this for them in terms of a kind of uh, local and national identity. So a sense of building up the relationships, um, not only a kind of Welsh identity in itself, but also coming to understand some of those relationships between Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, so the, uh, for those who participate in a project like this, right, it depends on these sort of mixed print and manuscript forms, a printed form where it's not complete until it's filled out by an informant. Um, but it also, for them, is about building up that shared sense of identity and national identity. Um, and that's worked out 
through the research methods, but also through the financing. Um, so subscription publication in the late 17th and early 18th century is a pretty common way to finance some of these scientific projects. Um, and Fluid is really taking advantage of that, where you know, instead of sending the material to a publisher on the expectation that um, the publisher will front the capital, you're drawing upon people distributed across the land and drawing upon their sense of national pride, potentially, in terms of contributing to this project. Okay, so a couple of thoughts um, for where we might take some of this in thinking about these questions of shared public meaning and how we might think or expand our understanding of the history of the book. Um, in this period. I want to suggest, and then I want to kind of open it, open it up to all of you. Um, I want to suggest that, again, what we see here is that we need to move beyond the printed book, potentially, especially in the last example, and I'm happy to talk more about that um, as we move forward into the discussion period, um, that textual circulation is happening along many vectors, and it's happening in many forms. Um, some of them are manuscript, some of them are print. Um, they're conditioned by the conversations that are going around at any given moment. And we need to capture all of that in order to understand how shared public meaning is created around knowledge of nature. Um, we need to bring in the wide involvement of clergy, of gentry, um, of, of wives, of widows, of folks in their kitchens and folks in the fields, and the way that they participate in creating a science that um, can function as that sort of undergirding of a sense of shared public meaning. Um, there's not necessarily a room here, I think, for concepts like print culture or manuscript culture, which have tended to dominate. Rather, there are sets of practices. There are things that people do with texts and to texts. Um, print, for example, as we see here, you know, instead of being released to a broad, a broad public, it's released to the subscribers. So it can facilitate something like a kind of coterie circulation, potentially. Um, I think we also see the way in which a visual tradition um, going back through the images from um, Galileo's texts, from the text by Wilkins, um, from Buffon's 1749 Histoire Naturelle, that visual tradition can very much kind of condition how people understand and enter the text. And it can be as much a part of the reading as the reading itself, right? Where if we think about um, Galileo's Dialogo, from the very beginning of the text, even before you get into it, he's trying to prepare you and condition you to only see the options as an Aristotelian Ptolemaic cosmos versus a Copernican cosmos. Um, and that's happening from the moment you enter the book in the image. Um, and I think that some of the, the older models that we have didn't necessarily take account for images about how they transform over time and how they're copied and used. And so we need to bring that into it. And then finally, I think thinking more about how texts are received and transmitted through time. Um, that we, in our understanding of these moments of intellectual transmission, um, perhaps we focus on the immediate over the sort of duration um, and how the text is transmitted and preserved through the library um, and how these debates are playing out over 100 years, 150 years. And that even as we get towards the end of the 17th century, um, as we saw with Walker's astronomical text, certainty isn't present yet. We have this kind of creation of an astronomical community, but we don't have certainty. We have a kind of openness. Um, we have a public meaning that isn't quite defined, right? That you can enjoy the pretty pictures, but you don't necessarily have to accept the science yet. You can see that as a kind of open question. 
Um, and then finally, I think we need to think about gender. We need to think about the ways that texts circulate um, among both women and men within some of these domestic worlds, the ways that women are pushing on some of those boundaries um, in terms of asserting more authority in the public sphere, and the way that they're received, the way that they're, they're cataloged, the way that they're remembered. So for example, the fact that if you search for an author of Afrobain's translation of Fontenelle's um, conversations on the plurality of worlds, right? You don't find her as the author, though she's presenting herself in some regards as that, as the primary sort of mover or name. Um, so, so these are some of the questions that I think we can, we can think about, um, and I'm looking forward to discussing them with you all in a few minutes. So thank you. <laughs>